0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the brand new Bill Press Pod. This is only our third week where we dive into the big issues facing us today with some of the best experts in the country. And one big issue that everybody's talking about today is income inequality. President Obama, in fact, once called it the most important problem facing this country. And in one way or another, all the Democratic candidates have some plan on how to deal with the income gap or the wealth gap, as they call it. Before we evaluate what they're offering, however, we really need to understand the issue, and nobody's better prepared to walk us through the issue of income inequality than Jared Bernstein, senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and former chief economist to then-Vice President Joe Biden. Jared Bernstein, good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. So we hear so much talk about and have for so long about income inequality. Let me just ask you to start off. How bad is it? How real is it?
1: It's very real. And whether it's bad or not is a matter of your perspective. I do think it's extremely problematic in lots of ways. I think it's responsible for many of the problems we face today, uh, all the way from slower macroeconomic growth than we'd like to see to – political upheaval, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I think just a few kind of baseline numbers to orient our listeners. Uh, uh, we're, we're back to levels of income and wealth and wage inequality that we haven't seen since the late 1920s. And people were, may remember that didn't end well. The
0: Gilded Age.
1: Uh, yeah. In other words, so for example, uh, back uh, um, uh, the uh, the share of uh, income going to the top uh, 1% uh, peaked out at a bit north of 20% in the late 1920s, and that's, that's where it is now. If you go back uh, a few decades, back to say the 60s, the 70s, uh, 10% of all national income was held by the top. Now it's doubled, it's 20%. If you talk about wealth, which is a lot more concentrated, and in my view, a lot more connected to many of the dysfunctions going on in our economy, Political corruption, for example, um, same thing—a doubling, but in this case, a doubling from twenty percent—that is twenty percent of all wealth held by the top one percent to forty percent uh, of all wealth. So you've got uh, the top uh, narrow group there controlling um, more wealth than the bottom half. And is that um, why?
0: <laughs> what are the what are the causes of that? How did it? How- and, and why does it just keep growing?
1: I don't think that there's a single cause. It is multi-determined. Uh, uh, there's, there's numerous perpetrators. Certainly one of them is um, the decline in worker bargaining power. I and mean, you can think of uh, uh, fewer unions as being linked to that, no question. We've had a, a decline in uh, the private share of unionizations down to 6%. At its peak, it was... Uh, you know uh, four or five times that um, we have and 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 with that has come uh, conversely the rise of employer power. Uh, one of the things that economists talk about now is the concentration of firms within industry so that some of the big firms and people know who I'm you know, the, the apples the Intel some of the hospital conglomerates mm-hmm. these firms now control enough of an industry in retail it's Amazon these these firms now control enough of their industries that they can set wages and labor standards so they're kind of taking what used to be a government function setting labor standards pushing back on inequalities through those kinds of policies taking that into their own private sector hands and, uh, and maximizing their profitability off any of the expenses of their of their workforce. Uh, the financial sector has uh, grown uh, a, a great deal while the manufacturing sector has shrunk. Part of that's globalization, which also has its fingerprints on this inequality problem. And the financial sector is a sector with tremendous inequalities embedded within it. Uh, then I think you get to the interaction of all this concentrated wealth and income and power and politics, which in this country uh, is is more permeable. The, the barrier between concentrated wealth and and political policy is uh, is more permeable than in almost any, and not almost, than in any other advanced economy. So inequality. You asked, how does it keep begat? How does inequality begat more inequality? Because the wealthiest among us can buy not just the politicians they want, that's kind of an old story, but the policies they want. And so we see a tax policy, which is another cause of the Mm -hmm. problem. We see a tax policy under Trump, a guy who was uh, elected through this whole faux populism kind of agenda. We see here a tax cut that exacerbates inequality by shifting even more income up to the top. So so both the private distribution and the after-tax distribution are pushing in the same wrong direction.
0: I wanted to ask you something, uh, you used the phrase earlier, um, because you hear income inequality, but there's also wealth inequality, yes. right?
1: Yes, Yeah, they, they're not the same thing. So, so uh, if you, one way to think about it is uh, income is a flow and wealth is a stock. So you get your income month in, month out, and uh, some of us, if we are uh, uh, earn enough relative uh, to our expenses, we can put some aside to save, and that's wealth. So uh, wealth is our savings, but then when you get into the big leagues uh, up there in the top of the wealth scale, wealth is your assets. And so if you look at the, if you look at the, the, the Uh, wealth holdings of those in the top even 10 percent you're you're going to see very little earnings from paychecks. Paychecks mean very little to the to these Mm -hmm. folks they mean everything to the median household the household right in the middle of the scale but but it's all about assets and 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 if you look at asset appreciation the extent the extent to which you know we talked about inequality begetting inequality wealth begets wealth I mean it goes back to the old song by uh Rich uh,
0: get richer, right? Yeah.
1: What's the old song about? Uh, God bless the child by the, the famous jazz singer whose name I'm blocking. Uh, Billy Holiday. The old Billie Holiday song. You know, uh, them that's got shall get. <laughs> that's uh, that's actually a, a compounding formula. If you go back to uh, to early uh, the early economics training, the uh, the fact that if you have these, uh, um, uh, you start with a large base of wealth and you've got our financial markets uh, generating the kind of asset appreciation they do, especially relative to pretty stagnant earnings and incomes for families in the middle, that's why wealth has become so uh, concentrated.
0: So building on on the numbers that you, you mentioned a little earlier, um, uh, I looked last night at, in 2017, mm-hmm. um, uh, on the site, inequality.org. Uh, last year, the top 10% had nine times the income of the bottom uh, 90%. The top 10%. The top 1% had 30 times yeah. the income of the bottom 90 The top 0.1%, 188 times income of the bottom 90%. When most people see that, I mean... It's hopeless, right? I mean they just
1: feel it's definitely they don't not have a chance. They may feel that way, and I I, I certainly uh, understand being incredibly discouraged by these, especially as you said earlier, that the numbers are going the wrong way, they're getting worse. Yeah. Uh but it's important to remember, especially for those of us who track these things historically, that these numbers have gone up and down. And there have been periods on our history when I mentioned I mentioned earlier, there have been periods in our history where there was half as much inequality as, as there is today. Instead of the uh, uh, top 1% of wealth holders holding 40% of the wealth, they held 20%. Now, you might still argue that that's uh, too high, and we're always going to have more inequality here than, than, than in, in, in most other advanced economies because of our approach to capitalism versus theirs. But I think um, people should be uh, not discouraged, but uh, truly incensed by uh, the extent of the inequality you just ticked off.
0: I remember uh, when you were chief economic advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, that President Obama at one point said that he thought that income inequality was the greatest challenge facing the country today.
1: Yeah, I was very proud of the president for for setting it up that way. I just just kind of a...
0: What did he do about it?
1: You know, he, (laughs) you have to remember just how hamstrung he was. I mean, Congress decided from the get-go that they weren't going to do anything to help this president, and in fact, he made a lot of proposals uh, that would have left us with more progressive taxation, with improved labor standards, with higher minimum wages, um, and uh, you know, they, they, were, they were all blocked. He did uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, late in his uh, tenure, try to change some of the labor standards that he could do by regulation and rule changes, particularly an overtime rule, so that middle class workers could once again get uh, be eligible for more overtime that they should get. Uh, But that never went through. It hit a court challenge, and, in fact, the Trumpies are pushing the other way on that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the unions. One um, proposal that I've seen, and, in fact, was in the recent New York Review of Books, is that the labor unions, um, their declining power, of course, has contributed, as you pointed out, to the inequality. Um, But that they have maybe a weapon that they can use in the big labor pension funds. And the way they decide on what to what companies to invest in and what kind of policies, is that part of a solution?
1: I think it is. And I, I the uh, labor folks certainly know all about that weapon. And I think that um, they've been fighting wars on so many different fronts, uh, particularly as their membership has declined. And some of those pensions have been underfunded. So they've got uh, headaches in that regard as well. But uh, both the unions and other um, shareholders have engaged in some sort of proxy actions to try to get companies to uh, uh, behave in ways that are uh, more helpful to average working folks. And they've had a little bit of success in that regard. And in fact, I think that is, uh, to some degree, an untapped pressure point. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, You mentioned, um, we've talked about wealth inequality. Elizabeth Warren talks about... um, and a black, a difference between black and white wealth mm. inequality.
1: That is a, a, a really critical difference. You know, we I, I mentioned earlier uh, the uh, median household, meaning the household right in the middle of the wage or income or wealth scale. <clears throat> so uh, uh, if you look at the median net worth, which is a good measure of wealth, that's your assets mm-hmm. minus your liability. So you have to you have to take debts into account because they're they're negative wealth. Um, if you look at the net worth of the median you know, white household it, it's something but it's not much. I don't have the numbers in my head but it's probably you know in the tens of thousands and it's largely home ownership you, know, you don't got, you don't have a lot of median households walking around with a stock and bond portfolio but sure home ownership is a key source of wealth for middle income whites. If you look at uh, African Americans, median wealth is just Fluctuates around zero, and especially after the housing bust, uh, it, uh, it 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 went uh, it went negative. So so uh, yes, that is, she, she's absolutely right to to highlight that problem. And even if you and you you'd be completely incorrect to think this. But even if you thought that we lived in a post-racist society, you'd be wrong. <laughs> There's a lot of evidence every day how wrong you would be. At at least on this issue, on on the absence Mm -hmm. of wealth for uh, black households, you have to acknowledge the legacy of slavery. Because African Americans were never able to even begin to accumulate the kind of wealth that, as we said earlier, begats more wealth. Um, There are network effects, neighborhood effects, education effects. Basically, where where you start out in this country is way too indicative of where you end up. And that puts minorities and African Americans in particular great disadvantage.
0: You did mention the tax cuts. Yes. First, the George W. Bush tax cuts, I guess, and compounded by the Donald Trump uh, tax cuts, Um, both exacerbating this problem and rewarding the people who are who are at the very top.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, my how uh, big a factor. um, It is a. Uh, a real factor. It's uh, it's a secondary factor to the uh, private sector dynamics that I described earlier: the the ascent of finance, the decline of manufacturing, globalization, uh, the uh, the loss of unionization, the diminished labor standards, um, uh, the the increase in, in the firm concentration. But all of that uh, is pushing the private, uh, or I should say, uh, what 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 economists call the primary distribution of income, meaning the distribution of income that happens from market actions or market outcomes. So the market does its thing and there's a a distribution of income and wealth. And then the government gets in there and it typically redistributes. And in fact, uh, our our tax system remains somewhat progressive, but there is much less of the kind of redistribution that uh, pushes against inequality and more of the upward redistribution that exacerbates it. So while it's a secondary factor, you're right, the Bush, uh, George W. Bush tax cuts, and then later uh, the Trump tax cuts uh, have exacerbated uh, this problem um, on many levels. I mean, for, for, yes, there is a, a huge cut in the corporate tax rate, so corporate profitability, which shows up in, in, in the stock market, uh, the stock market is, is basically a metric of uh, expectations uh, around future corporate profits. Uh, you know, the, the uh, 80% of the value of the stock market is held by the top 10%. So if you're gonna do something like cut corporate taxes, it's gonna boost corporate profitability, that's going to raise the value of share prices, that's going to help the wealthy. So that's that's part of the Bush, uh, I'm sorry, that's part of the Trump tax cuts. But another part is uh, um, one that I really gets under my skin, especially with all of Trump's phony trade you know, stuff where he kind of tries to pretend like he's helping working people. Uh, the Trump tax cuts significantly will exacerbate offshoring because they actually have something called a minimal uh, rate for global companies, for multinationals that can pay even less than the reduced corporate rate. So encourage more people to look at Encourage more offshoring. And again, that's one of my causes of, that's one of the causes I ticked off around inequality. So that that too will make it worse.
0: Let's flash forward to um, January, 2021. Uh, uh, let's say there's, God willing, a new Democrat in the White House. You are uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, What priority do you put on
1: income inequality, and what
0: would you propose to do about it?
1: It would be way up there at the top of the list. I mean, it might be number one. Uh, Certainly the racial dynamics that we described earlier, Mm -hmm. the uh, wealth inequality uh, therein uh, would be would be way up there and uh, uh, what I would do about it or what I would encourage my principals to do about it um, would be to uh, start with uh, tax policy, Um, tax policy that would reverse everything we just said. and In fact, if you look at the tax ideas that you're starting to hear from the Democrats, they are exactly that. Not just to roll back Trump tax cuts, but to try to help middle and lower income people with expanded uh, tax credits, typically uh, attached to work. Uh, Here at the Center on Budget, we talk a lot about uh, refundable tax credits and how important they are. Well, there are great ideas from many of the candidates of ways to significantly expand uh, those uh, pro-work Uh, wage subsidies that would uh, both lift a bunch of people out of poverty and push, I think, pretty hard against against income inequality. But I also would have have a a kind of a trade agenda that um, uh, put workers and not corporate interests at the heart of trade policy. Uh, Obviously, Trump has pretended to do to do that, but in fact, he's done the opposite. And that would involve, and interestingly, I will say uh, that uh, candidate uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren recently released a plan that that uh, does this sort of thing, I would have mm-hmm. a, I would have a real, I would have a very uh, significant industrial policy push. Uh, um, my economist friends often chide uh, this idea as picking winners, uh, and, and we don't pick winners in this country. Fact is, we pick winners all the time. We do it through the tax cuts. going to say, the tax cuts picked winners. The tax cuts picked winners. I just described some a minute ago, offshoring multinationals. But the way we pick winners is which firm has the most connected lobbyist. That's a really dumb way to pick winners. (laughs) And in fact, of course, it exacerbates inequality. What I would do is I would urge my principal to look around the next corner and try to figure out where the U.S. can grab global market share. And one of the great places to do so would be in the kinds of ideas in the Green New Deal. Somebody out there, some country out there is going to sell Uh, battery energy technology to the rest of the world, solar, grid, uh, uh, wind, and um, uh, and I'd like that to be us. Uh, I think that that would create significant production jobs for middle and low-wage workers, and uh, and, the, and that would help push back on inequality as well. One follow thing, you, 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 you know, you're, it's not a simple – right. But I would advise the candidate, it's not a simple question. Um, we have to do a uh, – we have to get right to work, and I actually suspect the next president will do so, to really repair labor standards that have been so eroded. Raise the minimum wage, which now I understand just uh, read something about the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, the federal minimum wage has been left untouched for the longest time on record. It's $7.25, which any listener knows is ridiculous. Now, many states have acted on their own, but many southern states have not. So the federal minimum wage is kind of like a southern minimum wage now. The overtime rule I mentioned, uh, there's lots of misclassification of, of, of workers as, uh, as self-employed when they're really W-2 employees. So, so there's a lot I would do in the labor standard space.
0: Before we take a little break, could this ever – you have envisioned the day – you wonder sometimes – why there's not more public reaction um, or outrage uh, at this growing uh, inequality gap, could it ever lead to the point where people are in the streets? I mean, there's a revolution. Government just breaks down.
1: You know, it's funny you it should It has s- in the past, right? Yes. and in Other societies. It's, it's, you know, I'm an economist, not a political scientist type, so I, I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I, I will tell you this, though. I recently was at a panel was on a panel at a very classy conference with, uh, you know, people flew in on their jets to get, there. um, Davos? Uh, not nope. me, Yeah, a Davos <laughs> type thing, but it wasn't Davos. And, uh, and I was on an inequality panel, a, it was sort of the token lefty. And, um, this guy who was running the panel, who is, I think worth a, about a, at least a billion. Uh, he's a, he's a hedge fund guy. Um, was basically telling the audience, look, the pitchforks out there look like they're getting pretty sharp to me. And we, in so many words, we yeah. have to throw these folks a crumb. And yeah, I have to say the audience was very unresponsive. I think they viewed him as like a traitor to his cause. And he was saying, let's just give them a higher minimum wage so maybe they'll leave us alone. So I don't know that I understand enough about uh, dialectics of history to really be able to answer your question effectively but I do think that tension is there and I certainly think that it's uh, helped Bernie Sanders uh, come in ascendancy Mm -hmm. and there's even an argument that uh, Donald Trump tapped that that sentiment as well it's just his thing was blaming all these other people for your problems
0: Talking with Jared Bernstein, who is a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. This is the Bill Press Pod, and uh, we're good to have you with us today. We're brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. The good men and women of the Iron Workers Union, under President um, uh, Eric Dean, they are building American communities today, but more importantly, they are ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow. If the Congress ever gets its shit together uh, and passes a strong infrastructure bill. Uh, the iron workers will be right in the lead we uh, thank them for the support of the uh, bill press pod, uh, direct you to the website at ironworkers.org
1: That's not just
0: the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home That's a good blend It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes Talk about starting the morning right just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be, convenient, comfortable. Ah. Jared, let's go back to a couple of the ideas we talked about. One thing we haven't mentioned is the gap, another gap between I always find fascinating between what CEOs take home and what your average worker. Oh yeah, takes That's in home the
1: multiple hundreds. Yeah. Right.
0: The last I've seen in 1980, it was 42 times the average yeah. worker. Uh, today, 361 times. So the your average CEO is taking home 13.94 million, and your average Joe or Jill lunch bucket taking home 38,613 dollars. That's got a be a factor here. A it's a huge factor.
1: I mean, that, that, what, what you're giving me is essentially yet another indicator of the kinds of inequalities, the kinds of gaps we're talking about. And those numbers are reflected in many of the uh, percentages I was uh, ticking off earlier, the share of wealth or income held by the top. Um, but it just, it just makes you, it, you wrap your head around that for a minute. So somebody is, uh, and, and their average income is in the tens of millions. And then compare that with someone who's in the in the in the middle of the scale. I'm not even talking about someone who's in mm-hmm. the bottom of the scale. And their income it tends to be around fifty or sixty thousand for the median family. Now, when you start looking about uh, at what it's what it's like to get by in an American city on that kind of money, now somebody like that isn't poor. They don't fall under our poverty line. But when they have to pay for housing, for child care, I think you've
0: got both. Husband and
1: wife working. Husband and wife. So there's transportation. And if they're both working, that's a child. You know, how I, any of my any of our listeners who have had children know that child care is a huge expense. You know, tens of thousands of dollars a year if you have a couple of kids. I mentioned health care, uh, transportation, and then um, uh, if you're able to put a little bit aside to save. So you've got this recent finding by the Federal Reserve. And I thought it was interesting that it came out of the Fed because... They try pretty hard not to put a thumb on the scale, showing that the share of uh, of households who couldn't handily come up with uh, 400 bucks to meet Uh, an emergency expense without borrowing or selling something or or, or putting it uh, on a credit card that would be tough for them to service, uh, that that share was uh, between 30 and 40%. Now, it's lower than it was, and I looked at it for African Americans, it was about 60%. It's lower than it was a few years ago, so it's been improving. But you're talking about people who, if their car breaks, they're kind of screwed, whereas other folks, if their car should break, they've got ten other cars in the garage. <laughs> so, the it's not just we, we tick off these numbers about wages and incomes and shares. I, I know I'm a guilty myself, but if you actually think how it plays out in people's lives, that's what we're talking about
0: now. Right. And while this, um, well the wealth of that, the top ten percent, one percent, zero point one percent has grown and grown and grown, the wages have basically flatlined.
1: They've been pretty stagnant. Now, recently we've uh, done a little better on that, and that's partly because when the unemployment rate gets very low, which it is right now, workers get a bit more bargaining power. And, and, And as I as I think you can tell at the heart of my economic and inequality model is a lack of bargaining power. That's why a full employment economy has always been so important to me, both as a matter of just dealing with some of these living standards issues. I was just talking about paying for housing, paying for healthcare. Your kid gets sick. And if you're up, if you're up there in the income or wealth stratosphere, boom, they've got all the help they need right away. But there are families who uh, have trouble uh, paying for, even uh, uh, preventive healthcare um, who, are, who are in the middle of the scale. So yeah, I think you have to think about how these things play out in both kind of relative terms, but also just in, in terms of uh, absolute living standards.
0: Uh, another issue that your boss, uh, Joe Biden, and others uh, are talking about on the campaign trail is um, the, the lack or the failure of so many major corporations to pay any federal income taxes. Um, 60 out of the, last year, 60 out of the Fortune 500 paid no income tax, and yet they had a total revenue stream of $79 billion. Uh, many of them, got, and he, he, Joe Biden talks a lot about Amazon, uh, paying no taxes on a $11 billion uh, in income. Uh,
1: how do we get at that? Well, remember, this is a, <clears throat> a problem that's been exacerbated, by a tax law change under Trump that, in fact, has cut corporate taxes and particularly for multinationals who uh, who can outsource uh, their uh, their production and uh, send their Profits to low tax hide their profits in low tax places and and count their expenses, which they can deduct in high tax places. So this is a tax code problem and it is a tax enforcement problem. So if you look at the plans of some of the folks who are uh, both candidates and other Democrats who are starting to think about precisely this problem, uh, one of them is to close loopholes in the tax code, of which mm-hmm. there are many. We could do a whole show right. on, on loopholes. Many of them are corporate, but many of them are on the on the personal side, uh, in fact, you mentioned Amazon, they've had uh, years where they've gotten uh, essentially rebates from the government because they've been able to deduct so much they from their tax bill.
0: $129 million last year. Yeah. Rebates, so, so, Amazon alone. Rebates,
1: exactly. So, so that's, that's because they were able to deduct some sort of losses. So these are all... These are all tax avoidance measures. They tend to be legal. Um, They're not tax evasion, they're tax avoidance. And and the reason is because our tax system has been bought and paid for by those very concentrated uh, uh, wealth folks of whom we're precisely talking about right now. And this gets back to the thing I said earlier. Our, our, our fundamental problem is this is a permeable barrier between wealth concentration and, and uh, national policy, including tax policy. So you have the Amazons of the world essentially buying the tax code they want. Um, the, uh, you asked what to do about it. Well, uh, r- write tax law that gets rid of those loopholes, but just as important, just as important, enforce it. Uh, if you look at the funding that the IRS has uh, mm-hmm. has seen, the enforcement division at the IRS, it's just, it's just tilted down year after year after year. It's a big issue for us here at CBPP. So, yes, you, you, you must improve. Uh, we must improve the tax code in the spirit of what I'm talking about. We also have to enforce it.
0: Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who says, I have a plan for that, <laughs> uh, uh, for everything. Uh, she has proposed uh, a wealth tax. She has. Two uh, percent on um, – income over 550 million dollars 50 and three percent if you're in the billion dollar category
1: good idea it's a great idea uh, but uh, it needs to be enforced so this is something we we haven't done. Uh, in this country before, by the way. We do, we do the, to the extent that we tax wealth, we tax property, so it's not like we've never done it. Uh, but uh, uh, her idea is pretty revolutionary in that uh, we're talking about uh, taxing wealth in a way that uh, we haven't before. And uh, by the way, to her credit, she does her homework. Uh, to her credit, uh, she's worked with some of the most knowledgeable tax scholars in the world, and they have, I've talked to them as well, and they believe, and I believe them, that this can be enforced. But it's going to be something that will involve uh, a lot of work by not just our enforcement agencies, not just IRS, our IRS, but uh, the tax enforcement agencies of other countries. Because remember, that kind of capital is really mobile. It vacations down in the Mm -hmm. Cayman Islands and it hides all over tax havens uh, in in the world. So we're going to have to really hold hands and jump together on that
0: one. Uh, And another idea that's gotten a lot of attention, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Who has an awful lot of power as a freshman? or guess, certainly gets a lot of attention as a freshman. So well deserved. A seventy percent rate on uh, in on personal income uh, above ten million dollars. Again,
1: another great good idea. idea. Another great idea. No, no, it's not a good idea. It's a great, great idea. idea. <laughs> no, I think it's a great idea. Now, you look. One of the things that I very much admire about AOC and about Warren, you know, interestingly that so far most of the ideas we're talking are coming from women, so that's kind of inspiring. Uh, one of the things I like about them is, is the boldness of their ideas and, and their, their aspirations. Uh, so if you, too, too often Democrats start where they want to end up, and so where they end up mm-hmm. is uh, far short of where they started. Uh so uh but if you look at the economics literature on this and it's been done by you know Nobel laureates people who uh really know their stuff um they will tell you that that type of a high marginal tax relatively high marginal tax rate so as you said it's not 70% on anybody it's 70% above 10 million which takes us to the you know top 0.1 or 0.01 of the top 1% right. so we're talking about a very you know, the, the oxygen gets very thin up in that part of the income distribution. Uh, but um, the, the, uh, the, the research on that suggests that it can be done uh, with, uh, with proper enforcement uh, without uh, the kinds of distortions that the anti-tax folks are always squawking about.
0: So at the end of the day, are you still a capitalist?
1: I am a capitalist, I think, at the end of the day. I'm not, I'm not sure what all of these terms mean. I know people throw socialist around these days but I think I'm probably, uh, I think, I think I'm, 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 I'm certainly still a, a capitalist. And, and I think the reason is, is because at my core kind of uh, economist self, uh, I, I really believe that this, that the system we have, if it's managed properly, um, has the capacity to enable everyone to realize their potential. That doesn't mean everybody will end up in the same place. With the same amount of banknotes in their wallet, by a long shot, we'll always have some inequality. But I do think there is a characteristic of a of of, of a of, a, of a, a kind of a flexibility to a capitalist economy that, when again, when it's when it's managed to control the kinds of excessive power that has distorted the income and wealth distribution so much, it's given birth to these inequalities we've been talking about now for the past few minutes. Uh, when 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 that kind of excess is properly uh, held back, then I think the potential of people to realize uh, both their economic, their spiritual, their intellectual potential is strongest in this kind of a system. Uh, but that's not happening now. And we've got to get back there.
0: Jared Bernstein, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's it for today's Build Press Pod. You'll find us wherever you go for your favorite podcast. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe so you won't miss any edition of the Bill Press Pod. And if you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. That really helps build our audience and get the word out. Again, thanks for listening.
1: We'll see you next time.